Ladies and gentlemen, it's episode five now of the In the Tank podcast. I am Aiden Pearson, joined by Matt Germain. Matt, first of all, congratulations to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers on winning the Super Bowl. We talked about them a little bit last week. Congratulations to them. We're happy to see, at least me as a Tampa fan, happy to see them win a Super Bowl. Kind of a crazy thing. What a performance. I mean, I, I anticipated they would win, but I never thought they would dominate as much as they did. That D really showed up. They truly dominated. We've got a lot to get into this week. Some free agent deals, some pitching help, arbitration cases with Ryan Yarbrough. We're also going to talk a little bit about the position battles going into camp and a whole lot more. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. Let's start with that Yarbrough arbitration case. Came out yesterday from Mark Tompkin that the arbitration case has been settled. The Rays won it. I believe it is $2.3 million that they will be paying him this year. Matt, what was your initial reaction when you saw that Yarborough, that the Rays beat Yarborough in the arbitration case? Well, like we, I said before we started, I, I don't think it's much of a surprise because the arbitration process is antiquated and it needs to be updated in the next CBA so that guys get fair value. But they, they'll value things like games started, wins, uh, a whole bunch of different things that are are sort of they're, they're not up to date in terms of how we should value players. So in a way, it didn't surprise me at all. But when you look at the value he's brought to the race since he's been with them, he he deserved the money. Now I have heard on the other side too, um, people saying, "Oh, it's only eight hundred grand. Why don't they just pay it to to Ryan?" And you got to remember, it, it lasts through the four years of arbitration that he's going to be eligible for. So that eight hundred thousand is really three point two million over the course of those four years of arbitration. So it was more significant than it would seem on the surface. Correct. Um, you know, and I think with it too, it's going to put the Rays in a position where they look like the bad guy. And that's one thing: no party can win in arbitration. Yeah. As much as one team or one team or player gets wins the arbitration, quote unquote, no, no party wins in that situation. Uh, the team doesn't win, nor does the player because the player and the team never want to fight about salary. And I think it could create a negative space in the locker room, potentially, if we, like what we saw with G-Man Choi winning his case. Right. I think if you saw the attitude that uh, G-Man Choi had about it, he, he was very mature about it. And I think the Rays knew with these two guys that they could go to battle with them and there would be no uh, extra baggage after the fact because of the maturity levels and, and how down to earth those two guys are. So I don't think there's much of an issue there for the Rays this year, but you're right. In a lot of cases, it drags up a whole bunch of things that if, if you're a big ego guy <laughs> uh, or you, you wear your, your heart on your sleeve, you might have a hard time dealing with a lot of things that are said. Now let's go ahead and move on to some other signings with the Rays and also some other teams. We'll start with some of these other teams. One guy you and I really hoped would come to Tampa, James Paxton, going back to his old stomping grounds in Seattle. You know, surprise, not surprise. What are your what are your reactions with that? It's a best case scenario, honestly. Like, so he doesn't go to the Blue Jays, so they don't get the depth. He doesn't go to the Yankees, they don't get the depth. He goes to a team that the Rays deal with constantly and that's not planned to be a playoff contender so they get to watch what he does with seattle for a half a year while seattle pays him and if he's doing great they can trade for him bring him over with mike zanino and he goes on a playoff run so they get the benefit of all worlds without any of the risk to be honest so i, I really like this for the Rays. and if we're talking about seattle too he knows how to pitch in seattle and that's a huge thing that i think a lot of people discount no offense to Felix Hernandez, who's a great pitcher, but we saw him when he went to Atlanta, wasn't the same pitcher. You know what I mean? Also, that's due to age too. But a lot of pitchers you see go into Seattle, pitch well because it's a pitcher-friendly ballpark, but you have to know how to pitch it and then go to other teams and not succeed. Someone like an Edwin Diaz in New York now with the Mets, you know? He didn't succeed after leaving Seattle. So I think this will allow James Paxton to either A, play the one-year contract and earn his salary and then go back into it next year. Or like you're talking about a potential team at the deadline that needs, needs him. And that'll open up a spot for some of their younger arms. Right. And it also makes it tougher on some of those AL West teams to, to earn a wild card spot. If we, if we don't expand the playoffs, uh, there's a chance that they'll beat each other up a little bit more and it allows maybe two of the AL East teams to squeak in. And, so and you it, know, I think a good one. 
It's it's a best case scenario for Tampa. That wasn't him signing here in Tampa. Yeah, exactly. Uh, another deal going back to the Dodgers. Justin Turner signed last night with the Los Angeles Dodgers again. I was talking with some of my buddies and some other Rays fans. I didn't see him going anywhere else other than L.A. I don't think his glove is what it used to be. And I don't think that there was another place that was going to pay him what L.A. could pay him. Yeah, I Justin Turner just he because he came through uh, his career in L.A. I mean, he wasn't like Kike Hernandez where they, they had the guys in L.A. to replace him in Zach McKinstry and a couple of other guys. But um, Justin Turner was basically he knew what he had to, to, to work with at home. And he was just a perfect fit. Simple as that. He really was. And he'll go back into that lineup just where he slotted in last year. And mm-hmm. it, it will be scary if the Rays have to face him in the World Series again this year. And hopefully we do make it back to the World Series again. But again, that's far away. First, we got to focus on making the playoffs. And the Rays started that campaign with bringing in two solid starting pitchers, one of which we'll probably see out of the bullpen in Colin McHugh. They also bring in Rich Hill into as a lefty into that team. What are your thoughts on these two deals? Low money deals, low risk, high reward deals. First of all, they're great human beings. And I mean that with sincerity. Like everything I've watched on read on these guys, the players that speak about them, the GMs, everybody else, they're getting high, high, high quality individuals who will be satisfied in whatever role the Rays give them. For example, had they signed James Paxton, they knew at that point he was a starter. He's not going to come in in relief. With these two guys, what they get instead is guys that can pop in at the beginning, after, at the end. They don't care. They just want to pitch. They want innings, and they want innings that build up to the playoff run. So I think they're they're perfect signings, and, and a lot of it has to do with the maturity that they bring in. When they dealt um, – Blake Snell away and let Morton go, they lost a lot of experience, a lot of the guys that they could lean on. And what I like in this case is that both Hill and McHugh have had different experiences throughout the majors and, and had had the struggle to get whatever playing time they got, have learned a lot of things. And it's and stuff that people, the young guys coming in, are going to be able to lean on them about, even if they end up on the injury list at some point. And let's not talk about also what they bring in with you're talking about with that experience. Both of them played in multiple World Series, and yeah. both of them have won a World Series. They mm-hmm. also have deep playoff runs and played on really good teams, something you can't teach. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's really important to have that. And even though the Rays now have a whole roster full of guys that have been to the World Series, next year you're going to have some crowds. It's going to be a little bit different, right? Now – Give me your take. What do you think we see these guys? What roles do we see them in? And let's also talk about, and we'll get into some financials in a minute, but what role do you see them fulfilling? Because now the Razors sort of have a backlog of starting pitchers slash X starting pitchers. What, what sort of role do you see these two guys filling? So my thoughts are that the Rays are bringing in a horde of options in spring training. Now, the first step is getting them through spring training ready to go and healthy. That's the first one. There's no role yet. Healthy is key. That is it. If they do that, they've succeeded. And then they can start picking and choosing who is healthy and then deciding what role they're going to go with based on that. If they sit down with either of them and say, listen, we've got this young guy. We'd like him to start. We're trying to build him up as a starter. And we need you to do these innings first as as the uh, bulk guy after he opens, yet, 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 vice versa. They'll be happy either way. I'm pretty certain that they would be the 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 key for them is going to be at the back end of the season are these guys healthy and that's something that the Rays can learn from LA when it comes to Rich Hill they were magical at getting him healthy despite blister issues and everything else he went through in the playoffs so the Rays will be monitoring things throughout the season with both these guys so that to make sure they're available for the for the playoffs one thing with McHugh he is coming off shoulder surgery I believe uh, he spent some time with Houston, and then last year he opted out of the season after signing a contract with Boston, now coming down to Tampa. All reports say he's fully healthy, but do you think the Rays use him as like a two, three-inning guy to get from, say, a guy like Chris Archer who gives you four, McHugh will give you two or three, and then you can get to the back end of that stable? I've been seeing this since we started this, the, this ta- in the tank. 
the Rays are going to be using everybody except for Tyler Glass now as a two to three to four inning guy. There is no seven inning guy on this team unless Glass now is efficient enough to actually make it through those kinds of innings or Fleming or something like that proves it over time. But originally they're going to, they're going to start and build guys up over time and see what shakes out. So yeah, I, maybe with, with, uh, with McHugh, he starts at, at, like you said, the shoulder issues are scary. And the same thing if McKay comes in mid-season, they'll start him with one inning and then build from there and see how it goes. Just listen I, to what he's saying. I agree there. Now, a lot of Rays fans, when Charlie Morton left Tampa Bay, Rays fans were up in arms. What are you doing? You're getting rid of him. But let's talk about what they brought in for the value that they mm-hmm. got rid of Charlie Morton at. Not got rid of, but didn't sign him back at. They bring in Archer, Waka, McHugh, and Hill, and then they take Blake Snell, flip that into Patino and Mejia and the other prospects. If you're a Rays fan, you've got to be happy with the value you're bringing back for that contract that you would have signed Morton for. How can you not? I mean, I put out a poll out on uh, on Twitter that had the, the statistics that Waka and Morton put out, and I said, which player would you take based on age and the stats they put up in 2020? And everybody said Waka. So if you go based on that, you're already getting a guy that's that's comparable statistically uh, to Morton on 2020 and is eight years younger. So let's just call that a wash for now. Okay, let's say Morton and Waka are a wash. Then you're looking at Hill, Patino, uh, McHugh, and uh, I'm missing one. <laughs> uh, uh, some of the other guys, anyways. Archer. Coming in coming in and filling in the hole that that is Blake Snell but it's not only that then you have all the prospects behind them that are going to have an opportunity we already talked about earlier we still got Yarborough you've got Fleming you've got multiple guys here who can do those innings that you need and if anything you're looking at teams here and you're looking at what teams can make deep runs into the playoffs right the one thing Tampa has over any team right now except for maybe LA and, and I think the Rays are better than them, is depth. The Rays have depth at every single position on their team that makes it so one guy goes down, we have the next man up. Right. So let's say we look at the American League uh, and we just leave the, the Padres and Dodgers to, and, and Braves to fight it out in the just National slip, League. Yeah, do, right? do their own thing over there. Yeah, they'll beat each other up. We'll end up having to face one of them, right? Yeah. Uh, that's a good thing. <laughs> Only one. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but on the American League side, if we're looking at overall, the, the team that scares me the most right now is the White Sox, right? Maybe you could put the Blue Jays close to that conversation, but they lack the, the depth of starting pitching that the White Sox have. Now, having said that, the White Sox system, although it's better than it used to be, is still very thin at the top of guys that are MLB ready that I'm aware of anyway. I'm not an expert on their system, but but that I'm aware of the names that we know that are prominent, that are spoken about a lot, there, there's not, there, there are not several layers of them. So if somebody goes down on their major league roster, let's say Dallas Keiko goes down, they're in a world of hurt. Uh, it, and it's happened to them before with Carlos Rodon and Michael Kopech and all those guys where they've gone down and it's hurt them significantly to the point where they're not making the playoffs most of the time. The Rays have that wealth of, of good God, I, I could go through 20, 25 names that you could seriously make a case that could impact the team. You could so, make a whole second team. Yeah. That, it, that, that could, and, you know, I say, I had this conversation with some people the other day. We were talking about the top five teams in the AL. Only one of those five people that I was talking to had the Rays in their top five. And I said, <laughs> hold up here. Let's, let's, let's have this conversation. The Rays are your defending world AL pennant champions. Let's start there. Okay. Yes, they may have traded away Snell. Yes, they may have not brought back Morton. But let's look at the value they brought in on top of that. Plus, let's look at their minor league organization. Plus, let's look at the depth. Right. You know, the everyone's so high on the Yankees every year. Everyone right now is really high on the Astros. And everyone's high on the Blue Jays with them bringing in Springer. My thing is is that the Yankees are always hurt. They have to be healthy for a full 162 to be able, and and that's not going to happen. Let's be honest here. The Blue Jays, they have to have everything click right for them to get through this team. The Red Sox, 
let's let's not discount what Boston can do. They have some good players over there, Endeavors and Bogart still, and they still got Chris Sale, who had a down year in 2020, and Nathan Eovaldi, who we know can be a good pitcher from what he did in Tampa. You know, we've still got teams that are all over the place that I think the Rays are the only team right now that we can say has depth, has the lineup to do it, and has been there. Because, yes, the Chicago White Sox team is good, but they haven't been there before. The Minnesota Twins are always around there in that conversation. The Yankees are hurt. The Blue Jays are an unknown. I I don't see how you can say anything else other than the Rays are maybe a top two or three team in the AL. When I try to be objective about the Yankees and I look at the comparison direct, because they went head-to-head in 2020 and we're trying to build like a, a measuring stick, I guess is the best way to put it. And you look at all of their roster, the Yankees, is one year older. So right there, they're going to take, slow down a step. The swing's going to slow down a bit, especially their guys that are entering their 30s. And those are key guys for them. You're talking about, you know, uh, Stanton, LeMahieu. Uh, there's just, there's guys that you can expect will have better years. Like Torres should have a, a much better year, I think. And maybe you can make a case that Gary Sanchez's bat comes around, right? But they're deadening the ball this year, which means that their outfielder is going to run around a whole lot more. So can you seriously tell me that Aaron Judge, Stanton, um, Hicks, that are all injury prone, have serious medical issues based on on those kind of things, jumping around in the outfield, that they're going to be better than they were before? And they they were already well behind what the Rays are. And you look at the Rays outfield, the best defensive outfield in, in, in MLB that covered the most ground that have the highest speed. And let's, so how- let's also not discount that their best defending outfielder from last year, they haven't brought back. And if they do, I believe he's 38 and Brett Gardner. Right. Who's the uh, one I with think the Frazier's most- a solid guy though. He, he might, he, Frazier's still solid for left field. So I, I, I make that a wash basically for them. Um, but, and, and then I want to go a step further. I want to say, okay, so we know that part. It raised defensively for their pitching is going to do better in the outfield overall, right? Let's just go there. Okay, so they have the edge there. Uh, then you look at the guys that they shipped out. So the Yankees shipped out their, the in their pitching, the guys with the third, fifth, seventh, and ninth highest war rating in 2020, okay? The Rays shipped out their fourth and sixth. So who shipped out the most? And then you look at the Yankees, they replaced it with two guys. Two guys that did not pitch in 2020 at all or barely and, and have serious medical issues. And, and so then you're hoping for Severino to come back. You're hoping for Domingo Herman to come back or a couple of the young guys to step up. But I heard Jim Bowden today talk about how the Yankees have the most depth in pitching compared uh, after the Dodgers or compared to the, I was, I was losing my mind. I was like, what are you talking about? They dealt a whole bunch of their depth in order to get guys like Tyon and to get rid of Ordovino's contract, yeah, they, like they've actually liquidated a lot of their depth. And I don't get it. I, I don't get it either. And the Yankees farm system is not what the Rays farm system is. And, and that's a whole nother thing. Also, let's just talk about head to head last year. I don't give a, a crap if you're talking about, oh, the Yankees were injured last year. DJ LeMahieu's comments that he made a few weeks back about how the Rays got lucky and got a few hits – I'm sorry, beating you seven games to two in the season series, beating you in a series, you're going to tell me that that was luck? No. And the Rays are going to be much tougher this year. By the time the playoffs come around, you might be looking at Franco, Arozarena, Lau, and and Meadows at the top four. And then when you bring in, and as much as I hate to say this, you bring in Chapman in the ninth? Oh, (laughs) shit, there comes Mike Brasso again. Like... (laughs) Him and Choi own the Yankees. I sent out a tweet today with their videos from uh, just as a Valentine to the Yankees. And oh man, it's yeah. Like I'm trying to be honest here. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm not trying to be a biased Rays fan, but no, even objective, if you look at it objectively, right? yeah. the Rays are better. Now, maybe the big guys, if they stay healthy in Stanton and Judge and do what they did in their one or two seasons where they were very, very good. And right. LeMahieu still is the player he is, and Kluber goes back to his Cy Young form, and Severino comes and becomes that greatest pitcher, then we're having a different conversation when it comes around to July or August time. But until then, nothing. And there is a fear with the Rays, right? Like, 
One of the things that made the Rays pen and pitching so solid in 2020 was probably the lack of scouting that teams had on a lot of those guys. They, they might not have had the book on John Curtis or Aaron Sledgers and a lot of the guys that they were bringing up. Now that they do, they might, you know, have a better uh, effectiveness against them. But when you're looking at, at the guys the, the Rays are bringing in behind them now, to, to actually supplement them if need be, they're, they're still going to be guys that they have to get to know again. Let's, let's also not talk about the I fact that, I'm sorry, I don't see how you're a hitter hitting against, let's say, Diego Castillo, for example. He gives you a 100-mile-an-hour fastball up and in, then throws you this slider that breaks about 12 feet to the outside corner. I, I, even if you have the scouting report and are sitting there waiting for it, it's still unhittable. Chaz Rowe, you know what I mean? Uh, Nick Anderson was unhittable till he just got worn out in the playoffs. Like, let's not discount what the Rays can do, even when you do have the scouting report. Right, and I want to add another thing to that too. But the the I know it was a, a cool stat, the fact that they had 12 closers in, in 2020 in such a short season. But all of that, the, the, the season they went through, the, the rush – uh, the, the, the series that they had to beat, they had to beat the Blue Jays. They had to beat the Astros. They had to beat the Yankees. They had to beat the Dodgers. I mean, they got the game six. So their heart rate for all those guys that took part in that is going to be so much lower in 2020 than it would have been otherwise. Uh, and that includes the hitters and the pitchers, but especially the pitchers, because now when they're in, in, I don't know, April 26th, in the middle of, you know, a game and, and Kevin Cash says, Hey, you're coming up for, to be the closer for this game. They can be, eh, so what? I, okay. I've done worse than this. Like I'm not, they're not going to be uh, asking the same guy to close all the time. They're not going to be. So if you're the opponent, if you're the Yankees and you're trying to set up your lineup as you're going through the game to have the right guys at the right time, you can't. And that's the other part that I want to speak about too. The benches. The Rays bench is way beyond the Blue Jays and the Yankees bench. It's not even close. They're not even in the same stratosphere. And how does that happen when you have a team like the Rays, which is so low budgeted, the options that Kevin Cash has to work with late in the game, it's insane. He's got a lefty and righty set up. And and so you look at the lineups. I I did the the tweets today. The Blue Jays have two left-handed bats. The Yankees have two left-handed bats. Everybody else is right-handed. So what I was going to say Kevin the Cash only is going to do the only two Blue Jays bats that I can think of that are left-handed are Kevin Biggio and Rowdy Tellez. That's it. That's it. And and for the Yankees, it's even worse. It's Mike Ford and Tyler Wade, and then they've got Aaron Hicks, which is a switch hitter. But so you're telling me that Kevin Cash can't stack the pitching staff based on that knowledge? There's nobody that they can bring off the bench that scares you. So no, there isn't. It's it, it just. You talk about talking about a, a team objectively when you're looking at a major league baseball season, that's what you bring out. That's what wins you games late. Uh, when guys are striking out left, right, and center, like Stanton and judge, that's what matters, right? That it's, it's looking at the whole picture, defensive, the, the pen, the pitching, the bench, the whole team, the Rays are a team to be reckoned with. And I hate to say this because it's true but the media will never give the Rays the credit they deserve. They will always give it to these markets like New York, LA, even Toronto is a bigger market than Tampa. The media will never focus on the Rays. They will always try to find a way to dog on Tampa like they did when the Bucks made it to the, to the Super Bowl, like when the Lightning made it to the Stanley Cup, even when the Rays made it to the World Series this past season. They will always try to find a way to dog on Tampa, and Tampa every year comes out and shocks the world. They keep asking dinosaurs for their opinions. If the dinosaurs don't know any better, they went, you think about it this way. Okay, let's say I'm Jim Bowden. I went through 30, 40 years of a career where I was told X, Y, Z. And then in comes this fledgling franchise and and literally revamps the whole game. Like from from switching guys around all over the field to the opener, to whatever rule you want to throw out there. Joe Madden was really the first one to bring in the defensive shift full time. So how do you wrap your brain around that if you're somebody that's grown up in the game and has such, oh, you've got to throw 200 innings. You've got to get those innings out of those core guys or else you can't win. Well, what? 
<laughs> yes, you can. The, the Rays have proved that you can. You see the difference in writers like Bob Nightingale and Ken Rosenthal and John Heyman versus the writers who were like the beat writers nowadays, like former Rays beat writer Juan Taribo. Guys like that who are younger and bringing it in. Even guys on this network, the Raise the Roof Network, like me, like Alex. You see, we look at these other things that we're, we're trying to get our heads around. Okay, you don't need – you need to get nine innings out of your pitching staff each game, all right? Or eight if you're the away team sometimes, you know what I mean? And then you need to try and get X amount of hits. You, you need to score at least one run. Ideally, you want to score four or five, right? We look at that as a mathematical equation. These old guys are like, oh, every guy needs to get 200 innings. No, let's be realistic here about the fact that all you need to do is take it game by game. And the fact of the matter is these old guys hate the saber metrics. Don't get me wrong. I'm not a fan of war. I think war is a BS stat. And I will take that to my grave. I don't see how you can call a replacement. What is replacement? And league average changes from year to year. I'm sorry, but the replacement for Barry Bonds or the replacement for Lou Gehrig or Joe DiMaggio is not the same replacement that we have for Austin Meadows or Hunter Renfro. Like, there are certain things that you can't grade that on that war, I feel like, is an arbitrary stat, but that's a whole nother conversation. But the fact of the matter is, is that you need to look at the whole picture and realize that the game evolves year to year. And that's what these old guys who are giving these predictions don't look at. Right. On the F war point, I would say it's a yearly stat. So you can compare apples to apples if you're doing it in that year, because they had the same conditions, same equipment, same whatever, and, and similar opponents. When you're going across decades, it becomes irrelevant. But exactly. it's a measuring stick, I guess. If I want to compare Mike Trout's 20, 2020 war to Mookie Betts' 2020 war, great. Right. We can see that. Mm-hmm. Also, something that Ward doesn't take into account, and this is something we talk about a lot here, is the off-the-field impact. Mm-hmm. What the guys bring to the clubhouse. Right. I'm sorry, but G-Man Choi's Ward, let's say it's two. I, I don't have the number off the top of my head. But how much culture does he bring to that, to that clubhouse when he's not playing or when he's injured or when he's even on the field dancing out there with the grounds crew pregame? You know what I mean? Like there are things that you can't take into account with stats that these old guys and younger guys alike don't look at. And you saw it during the playoffs. During the playoffs, what happened when the Braves were facing the Yankees uh, as the, the, the Yankees started to get frustrated because they were hitting balls solidly, but they kept getting caught. Rays were making great defensive plays and every, all the bats started tightening up. The players started tightening up on the bench and there was nobody there to really loosen them up and let them know. And it even happened during the season. Remember they had a, they had to have a closed door session because the Yankees were so far behind the, the eight ball that the management had to come in and say, Hey, listen, we're the Yankees. You're supposed to be playing like the, so there's a whole uh, mythology to it, to putting the right guys p- together. And you can see it in the, on the field. When the guys are hitting, you know, Mike Brossel hit the home run. But the guys' reactions was just, it was insane. They were off the hook. So uh, I'm happy for them. I'll, going back to the reporter thing, though, um, one thing that I find funny is sometimes you can try to, to target guys that you read that think a lot like you. And... and uh, I try to be objective and read a little bit of everybody all the time. And one of the first guys that I started reading religiously was somebody that got hired by the Rays afterwards, because the way that you have to think to be part of that kind of group has to be seeing beyond the numbers, seeing beyond the, the things that you've been taught all your whole life. And Jeff Sullivan, when they hired him on from Fangrass, you're telling me that there's not high quality individuals in that organization that know exactly what's going on and, and can, can make the, the, the more solid bet. Uh, I think when, when Jim Bowden and those kind of, guy, of, of dinosaur guys um, assess a team before the season and they make their predictions, they're overlooking a lot of the reactions that can happen in season, right? So let's say we're looking at the deadline this year with the CBA coming up. And you have uh, whatever teams, only a few playoff spots. How many teams are going to fall off so quickly? And who has the ammunition to go get the guys that they need to make that long playoff run? The Tampa so, Bay Rays. Right. So 
<laughs> exactly. So let's say they want to go get Luis Castillo. They can do that. If let's say they want to go get Herman Marquez or whoever, they, they can go and get literally anybody that they want. Um, and I hope that they do this year. I know them and the A's have been kind of hesitant to make that bold move before they head into the playoffs. I hope this is the year that they do that. I would like to bring up something going back to the war conversation for a second. <laughs> sure. In the playoffs, Brett Phillips, game four hero, mm-hmm. negative one war. Okay. He, he won game four for the race. But how about all of his off the field stuff? The, the Randy sign, the dance battles, the, the, just the fact that he's a hometown guy and all the fans love him. These are something that these stats can't take into account that gets me so heated when all people talk about is how good is a player based on their war or their batting average. Back in the 1980s, 1970s, it wasn't just about how many home runs and RBIs and hits you had. It was also about were you a good influence in the locker room? Right. And nowadays, I feel like teams don't take that into account. The only team that I see take that into account are the Rays. Well, there, there's a, to be fair, there's a lot more than that. I can remember, like, let's say you go back to uh, the end of the career of Omar Vizquel, for example. Um, like, he, he took part in a lot of organizations where he was brought in exactly because of that, because of what he could teach the other players, uh, the fact that you could use them in lots of different ways. And, and I think there are a lot of people that are conscious about those things, but I, I still feel like um, to make investments on the right role players on your bench, you have to be the Yankees, the Dodgers, whatever, because those marquee names are not, are not usually happy being on a small franchise and the bench player. Like they, they see that as almost a slight on their prestige, I guess, in a lot of cases. So that might be part of the issue as well. Yeah, and, and I think both of those are really account. I mean, if you want to talk about negative locker room presence, when Jeter and A-Rod got together out there in New York, they hated each other. There's a whole YouTube video about their, about their rivalry and their feud. If you want to go look it up, I believe it's from SB Nation. But there's that whole feud. And I think one thing that you can't discount that Tampa will give you every year is a lot of these guys came up together through the minor league ranks, played together in Durham, won championships in Durham. And then they're all guys who are all younger and they all get along. And then you bring in some of these veteran guys to teach some of these younger guys, like your Rich Hill-esque, like your Charlie Morton, guys like that. And it's a winning recipe for success. Yeah, Rays want people that want to be there. And then Blake Snell did not want to be there anymore. It was evident. It was evident even a year or two before this. Like when you're talking about calling Xavier Edwards names publicly, like you're just not a high class individual in my books when you do something like that. It, it, it puts your own um, uh, persona in the locker room into question. I'm not saying he wasn't liked. I'm not saying that the fans don't love him and that he doesn't love the fans. That's a whole different story. I'm saying that when you're looking at somebody that's not going to criticize all of the management decisions being done, question the manager's moves, yet, 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 all that kind of stuff that can bring a negative aura into the room, the Rays have been good at getting rid of that before it gets too bad. And, and so hopefully... Um, at some point they can get a stadium built. They can increase the budget and keep guys around a little bit longer than they have. That, that would really help. Um, And I think Brendan Lau is the first one I could see really lasting through the contract that he signed as an extension. So hopefully they can do the same with more guys than that. Exactly. We're going to take a quick break here. And when we come back on the other side, There's this thing going around Twitter with uh, what do you expect from your team? We'll dive a little bit into that. We'll also talk about the raised position battles going into spring training, as well as answer some of your questions. Don't go anywhere in the tank. We'll be back right after this. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back after that break. We are back here on in the tank. I'm Aiden Pearson joined by Matt Germain. We're going to go ahead and talk about some of these position battles heading into spring training. So Matt, why don't you go ahead and take the floor on this? So when you're looking at the Rays roster, the the lineup, let's say that there are no trades. There's no Willie Adamas trade. There's no Kevin Kiermaier trade. 
there are honestly are not very many battles to, to be had because the, the same guys are basically returning. You're not going to send Joey Wendell down to start Taylor Walls at third base. You're not, or Kevin Podlow or whatever. So generally speaking, the, the Rays lineup or roster when it comes to the field is fairly set. What you are going to get possibly is a battle between Brett Phillips and Josh Lowe if they felt that, you know, or if one ended up getting injured. Um, same thing with behind the plate at first base. So it's going to be injury related battles, I guess, is more than the position battles. Um, the only one that I can see really playing out is if, if for some unknown reason, Francisco Mejia, that really doesn't look good, then I could possibly see that Joseph Odom or uh, Rene Pinto sneaking in there and grabbing that spot. But it would take uh, a pretty big downfall for, for him to have to move out of the way. I think a battle that I'm looking at right now in camp is who's going to play third base. Because, yes, you've got Mike Brasso. You've also got Yandy Diaz and Joey Wendell, who did a lot of the defensive work last year. You've also got Yoshi Sutsugo, who can play there, who can play first or can play left. You know, I think third base is one of those positions where we're going to see a lot of different guys play third base in the spring till the Rays can figure out what they want to do there. Because Yandy Diaz and Mike Brasso are both good against left-handed pitching. Sutsugo had some trouble adjusting this year, so I'm not really sure what we see from him. We know Wendell has one of the best bats in the on the t- or one of the best gloves, sorry, not bats, but a really good glove over there at third base. So it'll be interesting to see what they do over at third base. And I think that's one of the big battles as well as one of the outfields. Uh, and also a lot of people, let's say Adamus does stay with the Rays. A lot of people think that Wanda Franco would end up at third uh, if Adamus was to stick around. So I, I think it is the, one of the more interesting positions, but it's also one of the positions that historically the Rays have, haven't really solidified with one player since Evan Longoria left. So we'll see how it goes. I also think there's some talk about who's going to play in the outfield and who's going to be that fourth outfielder like we talked about. Because you've got, it, just talking about outfielders specifically right now, so Tsugo can play left. You've got a Rosarena who's going to start for sure. You've also got Meadows. You've got Kiermeyer. You've got Margot. You've got Phillips. You've got Josh Lowe. You and got Brandon, seven guys for three spots. And Brandon Lau. And Brandon Lau can also play left. He's probably going to end up playing second base most of the time until we see guys like Bruhan and Walls and Franco come up this year. So, so let's say Bruhan lights it up in spring and they really want to bring him up. They could feasibly sneak... Brendan Lau into the outfield. Right. And then that that's eight. And then you're going to want Lau's bat in there. So then the question becomes, okay, what do we do with this outfield? How do you see this outfield shaking up? So it depends on what the Rays are looking at. And I, and I honestly, I haven't seen Randy Rosarena play enough center field to know myself, whether or not his routes are, are solid enough to play that consistently. I, I know Margot's are though. So I could see an outfield, uh, let's say they did want to go on the youth side eventually for whatever reason, even if there's injury related, you could have Brendan Lau in left or in right with Randy or Rosarena playing the other Emmanuel Margot or Kevin Kiermeyer in center. Though That would be a very effective and highly uh, potent bat outfield um, compared to what they've had in the past. Having said that, it also knocks out Brett Phillips. And it, it, it brings a lot of youth and questions defensively in, in, in the middle of the infield. So will Vidal Bruhan be as good at second base as Brandon Lau? He probably won't be. Could there be issues in turning double plays, et cetera? Maybe, but he also gives you more range. <laughs> His speed is, is ridiculous. So, um, And let's, let's not talk about – we can also talk about the fact that if Bruhan plays second base, when Franco comes up or when Walls comes up and plays short – He's turned double plays with them hundreds, if not thousands of times. Right. And he may not have played that much with Adamas. So that's something you got to take into consideration. I also think in the outfield, they're going to play what they always do with matchups. Mm-hmm. And, you know, oh, I think let's not be shocked here. If the Rays need a Castillo or a Herman or even maybe a reliever at the deadline, I wouldn't be shocked if we see Kiermeyer as a part of one of those deals. Or Adamas, if Walls and Franco are ready. You know what I mean? As much as Rays fans would hate it, 
we've got log jams both in the outfield and at shortstop that those are two guys who are pretty expendable if you ask me yeah it's tough to say because the 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 history is so deep and and the elite defensive abilities are are so evident um but as soon as jackie bradley jr signs i fully expect the Rays to test the waters of the trade market on that front and then see whether or not they get fair value if they don't get fair value they might wait you know there's always injuries in season there's always another time to make a deal they could include Included in trade deadline deals as well. But yeah, I think when you look at the deficiencies the Rays had in the playoffs, the, the, the spots that they could have done better at, because you can't expect Randy Rosarena to be Babe Ruth year after year after year in the playoffs. Eventually, you're going to want to increase the offensive abilities of your team somewhere. They've done it with Francisco Mejia behind the bat, who's a switch hitter, who has more power than what they had with Michael Perez. So that's one place where they have increased hopefully they're output offensively, but the other place that can increase it is in center field. So if they can do that and remain extremely solid defensively, why wouldn't they? You can also talk about the fact that they have, they still have Kevin Smith who they re-signed to a minor league deal. You've got guys like Pinto down there that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. You've got some guys who are a little bit further away too, but I think right now, like we've been talking about this whole podcast, the Rays have the depth, to win a World Series. They do. They really do. Now let's talk about something that I saw on Twitter that I really wanted to get your take on. It was, what do you expect from your MLB team this season, for lack of a better term? So let's start. What do you see as the Rays' record? This is all coming from Twitter. This is courtesy of uh, Wendini is his name on Twitter. He got it from another guy, um, but he was the one who gave it to me. So thank you to him. Uh, make sure to look out for him. I'll tag him on Twitter, on my Twitter, at Aiden on air, so that way you guys can get a look at it. So I'll, I'll give you a, uh, uh, a range, I guess, for each team. So for the Rays, I, I see it as 97 to 103 wins. Okay. Somewhere between there. 97 to 103. I'm going to say somewhere between 95 and 100. I, okay. I think that's uh, that's where I'm looking at. Let's talk about who do you think is going to be the Rays' Cy Young this year? Now, again, we've been talking a lot about innings being weird and things like that. So who do you think is going to be the Rays' Cy Young? And mind you, this is more for starter-based because there's another category for reliever of the year. Again, the Rays are a little finicky, but... For the Rays, it's so automatic. I mean, you can go... There's only two guys because of the injury histories and whatnot that you could feasibly put in there fairly solidly, and it would be... Tyre Glass now and Michael Walker. Michael Walker's stats from 2020 are severely underrated because he had such a horrible defensive team behind him. But if you take away a lot of those hits because of the performance behind him, his performance was basically Charlie Morton. So you can make a case that between him and uh, and Tyre Glass now, you have to make a coin flip. Now, in my case, it's easy Tyre Glass now because I know he's also working on adding a pitch, improving the changeup, yada, yada, yada. So... Tyler Glass now is it. <laughs> now, I want to say Tyler Glass now. Don't get me wrong. And I am going to say Tyler Glass now. However, I'm also going to give a name that is not one of the two you just mentioned. Josh Fleming. There it is. I mean, he's the third guy. Let's be honest. He's the yeah. third guy in there who you look at. We saw how well he did at the end of last season after getting called up, how well he did in the playoffs. I think he's going to be that sneaky guy in this race that are going to give you innings and efficient innings. So if you want to look at a third name outside of the two that were mentioned, Josh Fleming is going to be that guy. So my caution on Josh Fleming is once the book has been open on your stuff and people get to evaluate it, attack it through the off season, a lot of times they find your weaknesses and he has a very limited repertoire to work from based on what he used in 2020. So that would be my caveat on that. I could easily see Shane McClanahan take his spot in the rotation because Shane McClanahan has the velocity that Fleming lacks. So I'm hoping that Josh Fleming is adding to his repertoire. That's all i got to say. Yeah. <laughs> he has the, the composure, the demeanor, and the, the general abilities to do very well, though. Let's talk about MVP for this team. Ah. Now, mind you, MVP stands for most valuable player. Not necessarily the best player, but the most valuable. And that's something that I wish... 
uh, MVP voters, again, these old hags would take into consideration when voting for the MVP. But that's, again, a whole nother conversation. I have two. I have okay. two. Well, I'm going to go on the position player side because we already did the Cy Young, right? So I'm going to separate it. I wish that MLB would do the same when it comes to – but anyways, that's another story. So Randy Arena and Mike Zanino. And I, I know that surprises people, but – when you look at the consistent aspect of who's been working the pitchers through all that stuff, um, who worked them through the playoffs, who who is is going through spring training with a lot of those young guys and getting them the best out of them, it's Zanino, Snyder, Cash. Those are the guys that are the consistent pieces over the last two years. And so I think now that, and I know Zanino's had um, issues at the plate he has the power. He's always had the power. He's changed his stance and his approach at the plate about a hundred times. And, and, but I think that now the difference is because he's come back to the same team, he knows the staff so well, and he's so well-versed on how they need to attack people that I think he's has the extra time to dedicate to hitting that will benefit him. So I'm not saying that his performance at the plate is going to make him all of a sudden the best catcher in MLB, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that his presence on the staff and, and as a, a calming presence for the pitchers, as somebody they can go to to get that expertise that they need is invaluable. And it's something that's so underrated when it comes to the Rays and the seasons that they're going to be going through with him. There's a reason that they brought him back. Yes, the, the value isn't there dollar-wise to give him what he was going to get in arbitration, but a Rose Arena is still the most electric player in Yale East. I, I don't care what they say. George Springer went to the Jays. He's an awesome player. He's also 32. He's slowing down. He's not going to be as electric going forward as Randy Orozarena is, in my opinion. So I'm going to give you two as well for my most valuable players. I'm going to start with my first one. And I am similar to you in what you're thinking. However, I'm going to go Brandon Lau. I think he struggled a little bit last year. He had sort of a down, he had a great month, but he was sort of down a little bit last year. I think he bounces back this year and gives the Rays what they expect from him as a true three, four hole hitter. Mind you, the Rays will move guys around as much as they want, but your true three, four hole guy that you, that you need on a team, him and Randy is a one, two punch hitting in the three, four, two, three, one, two, four, five. However, the Rays put them are going to be a force to be reckoned with in this AL East. Now, my second is going to be Kevin Kiermeyer. Now, you may, may be saying, what? Here's my theory. Kevin Kiermeyer is going to come out of the gate hot. I think he's with Tampa on the opening day, and he's going to come out of the gate hot. There's going to be an injury somewhere to a playoff contending team that's going to need him, and he will maximize the value coming back for the Rays. That way, the Rays can add on to what they already have, and that'll make Kevin Kiermeyer a valuable player to the Rays. A little unorthodox, not maybe what you expect when you hear most valuable player. But again, what does the word valuable mean? And that's what I think value means. There's lots of different ways to quantify it for sure. Those solid choices. Brendan Lau is definitely somebody you can expect to have uh, in a, a well above average season. So hopefully it pans out. The next one is your breakout player of the year. Maybe a young guy. I, I call breakout player slash rookie of the year. Similar idea. So that's the hardest one with the Rays because there's so many guys and it'll mostly be based on opportunity. And I don't even know if they're going to trade this player or not, but I think Yandy Diaz, I did a comparison on Twitter uh, earlier this off season um, about him and DJ LeMahieu ages 25 to 29 and how close statistically speaking, they were, they're both contact guys. They both get hard contacts at a high rate. I think that if he remains healthy and he puts in as much work as he's always done, there's a chance he could have a DJ LeMahieu type breakout where he's hitting 330 with a well above average OBP and that he's able to be that right-handed bat the Rays have been looking to add with, along with Randy Rosarena. So I'll say Andy Diaz is the guy that could be it. I think for my breakout player slash rookie of the year, I'm going to go ahead and Go with the same guy that Wendini put out here, Shane McClanahan. I think we were talking about him earlier, and I really think he's going to be great in this pitching staff no matter what role the Rays ask him to fill. I think he's going to come out, 
show why the Rays drafted him out of USF. And I think he is truly going to make an impact on this team. I hope so. (laughs) Next is reliever of the year. Now the Rays use pretty much everyone in a reliever style role. So again, this one's a little difficult. So Matt, what are you expecting? Reliever, one reliever of the year. (laughs) That's crazy. Um, Good God. I want to go in so many different directions. Um, I have to go with Pete Fairbanks as long as health remains what it is, because I think he's the one guy you can see them using in so many different roles, um, but being so consistent and he doesn't have the wear and tear on him that Diego Castillo has, right? Um, because of the injuries he had to deal with. So it kind of makes him very risky and also uh, one of the calming guys. Um, so yeah, I'll go with, with Pete Fairbanks. I think my reliever of the year, I'm going with another younger pitcher, but I'm going to go ahead and go to the one I was talking about earlier in Diego Castillo. Mr. Fireballer with a hell of an off-speed pitch. I think we saw what he can really be in the postseason this year. And I think he builds off that and truly becomes a dominant pitcher in this bullpen more than he has already. He's got all the tools. Oh yeah. He's got all the guys around him and Anderson and Fairbanks and McHugh and Hill. And uh, the list goes on and on. I mean, this list is longer than we have time for here on this podcast. But I think he is going to provide really well with the pieces that are now around him. Yep. Uh, I'll say that my, I want to come up with a, a breakout reliever. Uh, that's an oldie, but a goodie. And, and then he's coming back from injury. And I think he'll have an impact sometime in, in 2021. Andrew Kittredge. I think that he's going to be a surprise to a lot of people. The fact that he can come back on track and, and he'll be used either as an opener or in relief, but either way, uh, if he's able to get back on track in AAA, he's going to be really, really, really important for them down the road. I, I, I can agree with that. I know a lot of Rays fans were calling from his head when I believe Slagers yeah. was traded. A yeah. lot of people were calling for his head. How is he still on this roster? But he was hurt, right? So it's, it's one of those things where you got you to gotta turn the page on that. So I, I understand. Next is a comeback player of the year, a guy who maybe battled injuries. And I think that goes into your Kittredge point. Is that the one you're going to stick with? Nope. Uh, I'm 100% going with Michael Walker. I think Michael Walker will be um, one of the big surprises across MLB. People are going to see what he can do in front of a great defensive team. And I think that uh, a few little tweaks here and there that Kyle Snyder will be able to get him to make is going to make him a very, 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 very valuable pitcher for this team. I'll give you one pitcher and one hitter. All right. Pitching wise, Chris Archer coming back home to Tampa Bay. He's got to be my pick right now. He's coming back home. He knows how to pitch in the trough. He loves the guys here. Uh, it's a recipe for success. Let's be honest here. Now, if it wasn't for the thoracic outlet, I would have picked the same. But yeah, I'm true. giving him an extra year, basically. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and go on the hitting side, though, with a guy who had a down year last year in Austin Meadows. I think he bounces back hard because Austin Meadows – we're not going to sit here and say it. He had a bad year last year. Let's, let's not sugarcoat what it is. Mind you, Randy Rosarena and Manuel Margot were there to pick up the slack. But he is going to come back now healthy and bounce back and show him why the Rays not only demolished the Pirates in this trade, but now fleece them by bringing back Archer. Meadows is a great choice and I love him. Like, I, I really think that, yeah, you're, you're right on track with that one. Now playoff finish. Here's the big one. Where do you expect the Rays to finish out this year? I have, I have them winning the world series. How can you not? Yeah, I, I honestly do. Place. Listen, if you go back and you can go online and, and read up, um, there's a, a blog that I take part in every year. Uh, he's a cards fan and he does this this whole series of, of articles that we have done every year since 2015 or 16 I can't remember when but but three years ago I said the Rays are going to be just above 500 and then two years ago I said they're going to make the playoffs and then last year I said they're going to the World Series there, there's just this uh, almost like the Kansas City Royals right and the Giants did it as well where it is this march of 
pace where a team can consistently make the, the next step by gaining the experience they need to take that next step. Uh, and so the Rays are in that perfect position. And people that are going to tell me that Blake Snell and Charlie Morton are the reason that they're not going to make the World Series, I just... <laughs> I have to bite my tongue a lot of times, especially on Twitter. And because I respect a lot of those people making those calls. I just think that this is the year when the chips are going to go in at some point in time, whether it's calling up Franco, whether it's making the right trade, they're going to make the world series as long as they're healthy <laughs> generally. Right. I mean, if, if Tyra glass now falls apart and Randy Orozena hits the wall and ends up injured, things can change very quickly in the in long baseball season. Right. But as long as they remain healthy and the, and the, the depth gets to get to work, I fully believe that they're the, the powerhouse to beat. And at some point it's going to be either the Jays or the white Sox and the Rays to, to finish off the American league. That's what I think I see. And, and I don't think you're wrong at all. I, I think you hit the nail on the head as best as you can. The only thing I'll say is just like the Rays, a lot of people are counting out the Minnesota Twins, and they're still around. They're still a good team out there. Yes, they've gotten a little older, but you, you can't discount what they have there. They're consistent. They make the playoffs. I don't see how they don't make the playoffs again. So I, 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 I've never understood their plan. I get they, they added what Anderton Simmons at the play shortstop for them. Um, but their pitching is still, again, it, it, it's a little bit like uh, the Yankees where they had the top surface guys. Right. And then you go deep into their system and there's nobody. How many top hundred prospect guys did they have that are MLB ready? Right. So there's not and in a long season. I think they get exposed. I, I would actually put more faith in the Indians than the twins at this point. Because they have the, the depth of guys all the way down. They, they did the trade with the Padres knowing that this was coming. Because they have, what, they, they got six or seven players in that deal. And then they made another trade for more guys. And so they've got a plethora of guys ready to roll. And, and, and with Terry Francona leading them, uh, Shane Bieber and uh, Jose Ramirez. They've got a solid infield. Anders Jimenez is great for shortstop. Uh, they have the, the best catching in the central uh, outside of Grandal. So I I think that I still like a lot of what they have. Now, they still have a lot of big question marks, but they've addressed some of their outfield deficiencies recently. I like what they've done. Unlike the Angels, who I completely hate everything that they've done, except for the Iglesias. Uh, I, I agree with you 1,000% there. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the minor league realignment for the Rays. You posted something last night or early this morning about the road to the trop in miles. Do you think, and this is a question (laughs) I've heard from, from a lot of Rays fans who have come to me. Do you think not having a team in Port Charlotte at their spring training facility or closer to Tampa is going to hurt them in the long run? I don't. Uh, because I don't think it's it's relevant in that sense. It actually gives them more freedom to react to a lot of the issues that they're going to have in the minors because everything is getting squeezed, right? So one of the issues that you're having this year, more than en- ever, is playing time. You're going to have guys that are looking for playing time. They won't even mind going down a level or up a level just to get the at-bats or the playing time because everybody's getting compressed with one team being shorted out and not having had a season last year. So there's going to be a a huge push. So by putting them closer together the way that they have, and to me, it's more important that they got them in front of big crowds. Uh, Consistently from Charleston all the way up to Durham, they're going to have solid crowds to work, to to play in front of and and really solid organizations that market well, that treat the players right from what I hear. Um, So the Rays did a really good job by nailing Charleston as a replacement. Um, and, I know and, it's sad not to have a, a team here or in, in Tampa area or Port Charlotte, but it made sense to some degree. And as a guy who worked in the Florida State League, specifically for Port Charlotte, great organization, great management, great guys, great fans. But the Florida State League does not pull attendance. There, there is no if, ands, or buts about that. And we've seen what Charleston can do. The fact that you got Bill Murray sitting in your back pocket that you can call anytime and bring in a thousand fans who just want to see Bill Murray yeah. 
is is something you can't discount. Let's let's be honest there. Mm -hmm. No, I think it'll it'll pay dividends. It really will. Uh, when you have guys in low way playing in front of a certain size crowd, and then they get the triple A similar size crowd, they're not going to really feel it, right? They're going to be comfortable in that environment. So it's good. And I like it. Let's be honest. The only thing I think it hurts is how fast maybe rehab. The fact that you can put a guy in Port Charlotte and then take the two hour drive up to Tampa in two day the next day. You know what I mean? It maybe the rehab changes a little bit the the way they rehab like where they put guys instead of sending them all to the high a maybe you send them to durham more often or send them to montgomery or depending on where you're playing that day i think that's the only thing that we'll see change right but you've seen a lot of guys like when they're doing their uh, rehabs let's say they did go from port charlotte and then before that they would have had to go to montgomery right so they had to go all the way back up and then all the way back down. So now it's just, it's actually going to be closer going from high A to double A. It's a short drive. They can literally make that overnight and, and be fine. It, it is. Um, another question I see a lot from Rays fans is what can we expect out of the minor leagues this year? Do we have four championship winning teams? Do we have, or do we not know because we don't know the state of minor league baseball and what can we expect with all these prospects who we hear about, what, what are we expecting this season from the Rays minor league organizations? So COVID-19 is going to have a big impact on that. If there's an outbreak in one franchise, if there's games lost, uh, but if we're talking just talent, I think the Rays will break records with all of their affiliates. Um, there's, there, well, I can't remember, Baseball America, I think, came out with a, uh, the, the affiliates and how well they performed and how the Rays had had done with all their affiliates and how much that was going to um, work its way through the franchise because the guys are so used to winning now and competing in the playoffs and being in championship races that by the time they get to the Rays, it's going to reap benefits. And it's true. Uh, just like sending guys to Australia is going to have the same kind of benefit when they're playing for the, the Claxton Shield, right? There's that... that um, being able to perform in high pressure situations. It doesn't matter if it's in little league or all the way up through triple a, you need that pressure uh, to test you. And, and then once you've gone through that, you're able to handle a little bit more. So I think that because the Rays have such a deep system, it's, it's really ridiculous. I, I try once in a while to just sit down and jot down triple a, double a high and low a uh, rosters and what they might look like. And I'm just running out of space for guys. <laughs> so I don't, I, and that, that, that doesn't just apply to the race. There are MLB teams. You're going to see minor league transactions going on when, when their season actually does start. That you're going to be like, what? That guy's getting let go of that guy's. There's going to be so many transactions going on um, where some of the weaker systems are going to reap benefits from that, to be quite honest. And it's not really fair in that sense. Um, but it also means that when the Rays get to that point, there's a high chance they're going to be dealing a lot of those guys for higher ranked guys. So you might see some consolidation trades in that case. I, I see you there. Um, let's talk about this real quick, a little bit more fun on the fun side. Yep. Chris Archer and Willie Adamas, we knew they had a great relationship coming up. They did a lot together coming, you know, when, when Adamas got here. Now that Archer's back, Willie Adamas and Chris Archer just posted on their Insta stories that they're having a little Valentine's Day, you know, br brunch together, uh, you know, happy Valentine's Day to the two of them. How much do you think chemistry between a shortstop and a pitcher or something like that, you know, really matters? So valuable. I mean, like you, you, everybody knows the grind of a major league baseball season. If you don't have that camaraderie, well, and guys you can lean on at certain points in times. And it won't always be the same guy, I'm imagining. But I remember Willie Adamas and, and Austin Meadows uh, prancing around uh, Tampa with cameras following them and, and just having a good time going through the city. And it was when Major League Baseball was trying to highlight some of the players. Like, that matters. Like, they, and, even, and even back in the day, another Willie Adamas bromance with Jake Bowers when Jake Bowers was here. The two of them were like, I mean, huge. And I mean... Let's it's a Valentine's day. Let's talk about some of the best bromances on the race. You know, oh, man. you've got, I think the best one is Randy Arozarena and Brett Phillips. Yeah. yeah oh, I mean, sure. that, the, the dance-offs are, are contagious. And, and actually they, 
I mean, you look at the marketing that the Rays can do surrounded just by those two guys. It's crazy. And they uh, weren't even on the roster to start the year. Right. Uh, another one, uh, sadly, he's gone, but Jose Alvarado and Diego Castillo, two, two guys who loved each other. Pete Fairbanks and Josh Fleming. Yeah. They were roommates for the whole season. I mean, when, when Fleming got to Tampa. Yeah. Yandy Diaz and Jiman Choi, I see them all the time on the bench, you know, joking around and always having a, I mean, G-Man Choi must have hit that Yandy Diaz workout routine this, this off season. Have you seen, have you seen G-Man Choi? Pipes, man, the pipes are there. And, and Jared Cole's going to look at those pipes and go, huh? <laughs> <They've gotten laughs> you know, honestly, if Yandy Diaz retires anytime soon, bring him in as a strength and conditioning coach to some team. You're going to be happy with your results. <laughs> there you go. Another, another one that I'd love to talk about that I think was really cool, not Rays related necessarily, but when Mike Zanino and James Paxton were together in, in Seattle, that, that has got to be one of the more heartwarming ones. Yeah, I think I could play at the deadline. I want to add one, though. Denard Spann. Denard Spann with the whole roster. How valuable is that? He's back. Yeah, so he's going to be infectious personality all the way through the, the, the roster as well. If somebody needs to talk to him, he's about as approachable a person as he can get. Yeah, I think my favorite one of all time, though, was Carlos Pena in his last season in Tampa. He had a bromance with a catcher named Jose Lobatone. The two of them were the best people to watch. He, he gave uh, Jose Lobatone the nickname of the ice cream man because before coming to Tampa, he had never had ice cream before. He hit a walk-off in, I think, June, and they brought him out a pint of Ben & Jerry's Dulce de Leche ice cream. And yeah. then, so he got the nickname of the ice cream man after that. That's awesome. The, the, just talking about this stuff makes you excited for Rays baseball. I'm pretty sure by the next time we record, we're going we're gonna to be in spring training. That's awesome. It's so I mean, nice. Uh, we're about a week away. Yep. It's time. It's, it's, I'm ready. It has been a long off season, still not knowing what's going to happen. We still got the possibility of a universal DH. We don't know though. We've still got a possibility of God forbid another outbreak. We go to a shorter season, which God forbid, no, thank you. Knock on wood, knock on whatever you got, you know, but we've got so many possibilities. We have unanswered questions unsigned free agents like Jackie Bradley Jr. or Brett Gardner, just two names to name a few. We're, I, I'm getting the bug. We're close to baseball season. It's time. It, it's spring training, man. Baseball, uh, football is over. It's time to turn age and go to baseball full time. It really is. Well, this has been another episode of In the Tank. Thank you so much to Matt for joining us again. We'll be back next week. Next week, we'll talk about the beginnings of spring training. Any free agent news, any trade news that comes out of Tampa Bay, we'll talk about. We'll also get more look at some of these prospects who are on the Rays' 73-man spring training rosters, one of the biggest in Major League Baseball this year. Shocked by that? Probably not. I mean, you got to think the Rays got such a deep farm system. It, Matt, any last thoughts before we head out? No, I, the only one I have is I'm curious to see what moves they may make with the 60-day IL and who else they bring in the spring. I think you'll see a couple of names in the, that are like Chris Salas, David Hess added to the guys coming up for spring. Definitely. Also, big shout out to our, uh, I believe it was four guys we had play over for the Perth Heat in Australia this offseason. 20, was it 24 runs? Or 26 runs like that? they put up in the first game, I think. Yeah, is- I mean, it was crazy. Sadly, the bats died off, but they'll be coming back to the States. Definitely with a whole lot. Ford Proctor, I think, was the biggest one there, getting a whole lot of time behind the dish, really ramping up his development. I think that could be huge for Tampa. But we'll get into that in much, much more next week on In the Tank. So for me, Aiden Pearson and Matt Germain, thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you guys next week. (laughs) 